0: John chapter 8, beginning with verse 2, we're told that now early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple. And for just a little context, the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place in October in the fall, one of the fall festivals, had just finished up the day before. So you can read some of the previous chapters, see some of the things that had been taking place. So Feast of Tabernacles is finished up, it's the fall time. We're told Jesus came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down, and he taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, John adds a little commentary, testing Jesus that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, so they're repeating themselves, Jesus raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, which was a really term of endearment, he said, Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. As the Apostle John recalls this seminal event in the ministry of Jesus, and it's, it's worth noting that this is, John is the only gospel author to include this particular event. He remembers, as he's recalling, it being very early in the morning, when Jesus came again to the temple, And for just a moment, I'd like to just kind of paint the scene with the sun rising, cresting over the Mount of Olives, which was located to the east of the holy city. The dark shadows that had been dominating the temple precincts since, well, dusk, are slowly erased by rays of flaxen light radiating off the white marble structure that's been inlaid with gold paneling. Additionally, since, the again, the Feast of Tabernacles has just finished, occurring in the, the fall, October, there's a warmth now, provided by daybreak. You can imagine it's a welcomed reprieve from the chilly night air. I mean, the scene, the, just the visual, it's stunning. It's majestic. Now, as you make your way into the temple that morning, you, you can't help but note, that the mood is much different now that the Feast of Tabernacles has concluded. Most of the pilgrims have departed home. The festivities have ceased. The atmosphere has really returned to kind of a normalcy. The primary activity of that morning probably focused on all the necessary cleanup. You also notice that the crowd that morning in the temple is, is much different than it would have been the day before. Those present at such an early hour would be a combination of, of local residents prepping for the day, the merchants, priests and orderlies finishing up their various responsibilities. No doubt there would be a few pilgrims coming to see the temple one last time on their way out of town. When you hear that Jesus and his disciples were also present that morning, there's part of you that's kind of in total disbelief. You see, just 24 hours earlier, the religious establishment, the religious rulers, the leaders had made what became an unsuccessful attempt at arresting Jesus. And yet not only had Jesus returned to the the scene of the crime, returned to the temple, but he's come back with the intention of publicly teaching the people. In contrast to the previous day, when we're told that Jesus stood up in the midst of the crowd And cried out to the masses, inviting any and all who had a spiritual thirst to come and drink from the living water only he could provide. This morning, his demeanor is a bit different. Maybe a bit more subdued. Jesus is not standing in the midst. He's not crying out with a loud voice. In fact, John records that Jesus was sitting. He was sitting down, which was the proper posture of a rabbi in that day teaching the people. Now, as I imagine that particular morning, I see Jesus coming into the temple. I see him taking up a seat under probably one of the many outer porticos built years before by Herod the Great. While initially Jesus probably began teaching a small group, no larger than his 12 disciples, as word spreads among among the, the crowd there in the temple mount, word spreads doesn't take long for the audience to grow, to multiply. In fact, John says all the people who were in the precincts that morning, hearing that Jesus was there teaching, they all come to hear what Jesus had to say. What a scene. How large the audience had swelled to, we can't say for sure. Other than the fact that because John uh, lacks any type of specificity, the crowd probably left a considerable footprint as you're standing there amongst the crowd, and really try to get there. I mean, you're listening intently to what Jesus is teaching. You're hanging on every word. There's a moment in time where you start to find yourself kind of annoyed. Not, not at Jesus, not at the crowd, but at something that's, that's taking place, a ruckus, that's taking place somewhere outside of the temple. You think to yourself, why are, why are people yelling? and screaming this early in the morning. Now, yeah, you do your best to remain as attentive as you can, but the truth is that it's becoming more and more difficult to focus as this commotion begins making its way closer and closer to where you're standing. Soon, it becomes evident that this hubbub is intentionally making its way your direction, not not to find you, but Jesus. You watch as this large crowd of people begin to part with an interesting entourage of these scribes and Pharisees bringing a woman who had been caught in adultery to Jesus. Initially, your first thought is you're struck by, by kind of the posse of religious men. I mean, you had the scribes who were the experts in the law. They were the lawyers. And they're joined by the religious right, the Republicans a group of Pharisees, the ruling religious class. They were the fundamentalists of their day. In fact, their ornate and rather gaudy outfits are a dead giveaway as to who these men are. Now, the obvious question as you're standing there, the question that comes to your mind, again, what are these men doing up so early? And why were they coming to Jesus? And soon your answers, your questions are answered. When you notice that these pious men have brought to Jesus a woman. A woman caught in adultery. And again, you wonder, right? I mean, only naturally. Why are they bringing this woman so early to Jesus? And aside from that, why are they making such a public spectacle of her? In fact, there's a a palpable awkwardness, an uneasiness that kind of grips the audience. Everyone's uneased by what they're watching. This, This Greek word that we have, caught, caught in adultery, it means to lay hold of or to seize upon. Again, the description of this woman is that she was caught in adultery, which implies that the woman had been arrested seized upon, placed into shackles in the very act of committing a sexual sin. And if that sounds terrible, if that sounds horrifying, in actuality, it's probably worse than that. Quoting David Guzik, quoting Henry Morris. (laughs) Let me read. Legally speaking, the standard of evidence was very high for the crime of adultery. There had to be two witnesses, and they had to agree perfectly. They had to see the sexual act take place. It wasn't enough to see the pair leaving the same room together, or even lying on the same bed together. The actual physical movements of the couple must have been capable of no other explanation. Couldn't have been playing Twister. Like conditions for adultery were so stringent that they could really only be met on the rarest of occasions. (laughs) Understand one thing about this situation this particular morning. Both this woman, her sin, her shame, have been completely laid bare and placed on public display. Like, this woman standing there in the midst, like, there's no hiding it. Her sin, committed in a most private setting, with someone that she likely trusted, had been drugged into the light of day. I can imagine kicking and screaming and panic. <laughs> imagine just for a minute, again, what that morning, what that morning might have been like For this poor woman. (laughs) Technology. Imagine, imagine. What the morning would have been like for her. Like in the very act. Of non-marital consensual sex. Which she would have known was a crime punishable by death. Here she is with this man in the act when you have these religious men who, as creepy as it sounds, have been watching this intimate exchange, this intimate moment take place. They burst into the room. She's still in the act itself without any care, without cooth. Without compassion, these men snatch her from the bed. Leaving behind, by the way, her partner. We'll get to that. And then adding further injury to insult, they proceed to drag this naked woman through the winding streets and alleyways of Jerusalem into the temple precincts through a crowd of onlookers bringing her to Jesus. Imagine. I mean, the the complete and total humiliation. Getting back to you, you're standing there. You're processing what's happening. Don't forget the woman had been totally blindsided by a group of men that were not interested in demonstrating any type of sympathy or common decency. In fact, it's it's unlikely that they had given her time to dress or to compose herself. She's petrified. She's cold. She's partially nude. And she's disoriented. Aside from this, her obvious distress is compounded now by the knowledge. You can see it in her face that she knew what she had done was wrong. She knew adultery was a sin before God. Of all the laws in Scripture, adultery had made the top ten list. It had been codified in tablets of stone. She knew her fate was death. She had been caught, red-handed. There's no way out of her predicament. And knowing what would happen, her thoughts immediately turn to the effects that her poor choices were going to have for her family. The shame, right, that her parents were likely to experience. I mean, her neighbors are standing in the crowd. It would have been overwhelming. We don't know one way or the other, but let's just say she was married. Let's say she had children. I'm sure she was thinking of the the pain that her husband would feel. The ridicule her kids would have to endure. While being dragged from one street to another, grief engulfs her. What have I done, she thinks. I knew this was wrong. And here I am, I've sacrificed everything for just one night of pleasure. This woman has sown to the wind, and now she's about to reap the whirlwind. Her life is effectively over. (laughs) As these men lug her from one street to the next, across town, she has no idea where they're taking her, no question. She's crying out for mercy. Then she realizes, of all the places they're taking her, they're taking her into the temple, and in that moment she's mortified. Here she is now standing, fully exposed, in front of a mob of shocked onlookers. She struggles to cover up her nakedness, to preserve, even at a minimum, some measure of modesty. She's weeping. Her head is bowed. She's desperate to avoid making eye contact with anyone. Can't you see it? John remembers that once they had sat her in the midst of the crowd, these men then brazenly explained to Jesus that the woman had been caught in adultery. Hey, Jesus, in case you were wondering, she was caught in adultery. And then they add, just so there could be no debate regarding the merits of their accusation, that they had caught her how? In the very act. They're very clear on that. No regard for this lady. John then notes how they followed up their explanation but then a, a question, a legal question that really reveals kind of the entire motivation, the purpose behind the debacle. They ask now Moses, Jesus, in the law, he commanded us that such a woman be stoned, but what do you say? Again, if you'd been present that morning watching all of this play out, there is no question, no doubt really, that you would have found the entire situation Highly suspicious, wouldn't you? I mean, first, uh, the most obvious inconsistency would have been the 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 absence of what? <laughs> the participating party in the affair it takes two to tango. Does it take a law degree to realize it takes two people to commit adultery? And then, because you're a good Hebrew, you know that there's an incredibly high threshold for such a conviction, so you're thinking, wait a second, where's the dude? Aside from this, the fact the man's nowhere to be found, the other circumstance that would have fostered a clear suspicion as to what had really taken place would have centered on just the, the, the ill intent of the accusers themselves. Like everyone present that morning could see that these religious men, these scribes and these Pharisees, they hadn't brought this woman to Jesus out of any type of, of real concern for justice. It was brutally obvious that these men were using this woman in order to place Jesus into a conundrum, an impossible situation. Like right from the jump, everyone there knows the situation stinks. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to surmise that the woman had probably been set up just to create this dynamic to catch Jesus in some trap. In fact, John, again, he removes all doubt as to the true intentions of it all. In verse 6, he says, This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Now, pertaining to the law of Moses, we should be fair in that the religious leaders were correct. That the woman was to be stoned to death. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, we're told very plainly, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. I mean, that's pretty clear. But the legal trap that these men are setting for Jesus, it was simple. You know, if Jesus advocated that mercy be shown to this woman, well, then they could accuse him for contradicting the law, what the law said plainly. And yet, on the other side of the equation, since the Romans had revoked the right of the Jewish people to enact capital punishment and didn't consider adultery worthy of death, if Jesus agreed that the woman should be stoned and because he's a righteous man proceeds to lead the charge, then they could build a case that Jesus was fostering a disregard for Juliana law and, and some type of maybe rebellion or insurrection against Rome. Like it was kind of a catch-22, to be sure. Now, thinking through all the possible ways that Jesus might try to wiggle his way out of their snare, <laughs> I'm sure that they did not anticipate what happens next. You see, instead of answering these men, even acknowledging they've asked a question or mounting a, a, a counter-argument. John just says, but Jesus. So there's a contrast. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So you can see the scene. Jesus ignores them, stoops down, starts writing in the, in the ground with his finger. They continue repeating the question as if Jesus hadn't heard them, but he had. What a moment. The half-naked woman is brought before the Lord, brought before Jesus, and she's forced to stand there, to stand before everyone. Exposed, ashamed, guilty. And beyond that, because the man wasn't also arrested, the reality of what's played out hits her hard. She knows she's been set up. She had been intimate with a man who sold her out after getting off. She's standing there, yes, naked, but more than that, she's broken, isn't she? She's hurting, and she's alone. As these men continue to demonstrate kind of zero regard for the embarrassment they're causing her, men void of any appropriate sense of of justice, men who lack just even a basic decorum of decency by using this situation to bring up issues of law. Jesus ignores them. But then he also stoops down, and he begins writing on the ground with his finger. That's true. That you can find, if you're interested, all kinds of theories as to what Jesus may have been writing. But personally, I believe that it's a waste of time, and at best, conjecture. Because the Holy Spirit decided not to tell us what Jesus was writing. It's as simple as that. Which then leads to why the detail. You see, the reason that this interesting detail is included by John in this story is to record, or just really to make it clear, what Jesus did, and not necessarily what he wrote. You know, please note, that never once does Jesus challenge the assertions of the religious men. Uh, setting aside the fact that she had been set up. Like, there's no debating her guilt. Jesus knew she had committed adultery. Jesus knew that the law subsequently commended her, condemned her to death. And yet, while she was guilty as charged, it was the posture of Jesus and the presence of the sinner See, it was his posture that intended to powerfully contrast for everyone present and then for us in continuation to powerfully contrast what was a shameless approach of the religious leaders. That's the intention. Jesus' posture contrasts these men. (laughs) So we should ask, why would Jesus stoop down? Now, as I again have watched this scene play out, in my mind, over the years. I've always pictured, as probably you have, this woman laying on the ground. Which is why Jesus would stoop down right in the the dust. And then even at that point, the the application would be that he's identifying with her, maybe somehow covering her, that she's laying on the ground. (laughs) I've taught it that way. I was wrong. Something that hit me this time through the text. Because that's not what the passage says her posture was at all. Look at two different places very quickly. In verse 3, the religious leaders bring her, right? And we're told, when they had set her in the midst. Set her in the midst. Hold on. Because then you go to verse 9. And John adds, And Jesus was left alone, and the woman what? Standing in the midst, so that when Jesus raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman and said to her, Woman, who are the accusers of yours? This word that's translated as they sat her in the midst in the Greek is the identical word we find the woman standing. Same word. The woman is standing. Which then leads to another question, doesn't it? Why would Jesus stoop down when the woman's standing up? Well, we can say and assume that Jesus was indeed riding something in the dirt for her eyes only, right? I believe that stooping down was likely, again, if you imagine the scene, the only posture that would allow Jesus to make eye contact with a woman looking down, trying to avoid it. You see, in contrast to these pious religious men looking down upon the sinner, Jesus stooped down so that the sinner could see her Savior. See, Jesus adopted a posture so that this woman who had been caught into sin could see him, could look into his eyes, And know that she would be saved. We'll address this a bit more at the end of our study. But it really is tragic, I think. That when Christians end up being presented with a person. A brother or sister in the Lord. Caught in sin. Guilty as charged. Rarely do we emulate the posture of Jesus. You know, sadly, like these religious men, many Christians end up being way more concerned with seeing sin properly judged than stooping down to help a sinner see Jesus. For how long Jesus remained on the ground while these men continued to press him for an answer? We, we really have no idea. But at some point, <laughs> Jesus has had enough. John remembers how Jesus raises himself up. And he turns to these men and he says to them, and it's one of the the most famous lines in Scripture. He says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Let him cast the first stone. Amazingly, after throwing down the gauntlet and really having no concern, for the stones that that might be flying at any moment. John tells us that Jesus, after saying this to these men, just nonchalantly stoops back down in order to return to whatever it was he was riding in the dirt as these men are contemplating what comes next. Now regarding this statement that Jesus makes to these religious men, I am afraid that it has been twisted to imply many things that it does not. Like, tragically, this verse happens to be one of the go-tos. Thrown around by people who are caught in sin, hoping that in invoking this passage, might be able to dodge any type of accountability or escape any type of real consequence. Oh, you know, he who is without sin casts the first stone. That's what Jesus said. How dare you judge me? One of the radical aspects of Jesus' statement is the fact that he not only in making that statement concedes the fact she's guilty of adultery, but he affirms the reality that she should be put to death. In a sense, Jesus is agreeing with Moses. He's supporting the mandates that were outlined by God in the law. Adultery was the justifiable reason to stone a person. The other misconception of Jesus' statement is that is that in some way he's forbidding sinners from holding other sinners accountable for their behaviors. As if the only people who are permitted to cast a stone or or enforce the just penalty for sin must themselves be sinless. (laughs) To be be fair, if that's what Jesus is articulating, the ramifications are far-reaching beyond this passage. One, the vast majority of the entire Old Testament law would be unenforceable because we're all sinners. Two, the church would not have the right to, uh, to enact necessary disciplines to address blatant, unrepentant sin if that's the actual position. Or, or thirdly, no one but Jesus could ever mete out a punishment because Jesus is the only person that's sinless. It doesn't make sense. In fact, you would say that that position, that perspective, stands in direct conflict with much of what the Bible actually says about sin and how we as a church should address it. But we should consider, what was Jesus getting at? What did he mean when he said to these men, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone? What was Jesus saying? For starters, you should keep in mind that this phrase, he who is without sin in the Greek language, this is the only place in the Bible that statement is ever made. It's very unique. In fact, the phrase is actually one word. It's a word that doesn't describe a person who is sinless, but a person that doesn't have guilt of sin pertaining to a particular situation. You see, in using this word, Jesus is not saying that he who has never sinned cast the first stone. But what he's saying is he who has a clean conscience pertaining to this woman and how she was caught in sin You cast the first stone. That's what he's saying in the phrase. To this point, again, a wonderful commentator, David Guzik. This is what he writes. He says, in Jewish law, witnesses to the capital crime began the stoning. Jesus really said, we may execute her, but we must do it correctly. One of the witnesses must begin her execution. So who among you is the one who witnessed the crime and only brought to me the woman and not the man who designed the situation to humiliate her? Instead of passing a sentence upon the woman, Jesus passed a sentence upon her accusers. He didn't say, don't execute her. He simply demanded that justice be fairly and righteously applied. You know what makes Jesus' approach here really brilliant? Is that on the one hand, he agrees with Moses. Hey, this woman should be stoned. Well, at the same time, he doesn't directly contradict Roman law. By instigating the stoning of the woman himself. Yeah, aside from this, and it's probably the detail that I love the most about the story, is that after Jesus issues this challenge, what does he do? He doesn't wait for an answer, he gets right back down in the dirt. And while the religious leaders were focused, again, on punishing sin, Jesus was more interested in ministering to the sinner. What a moment it must have been when each of these self-righteous men, convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest to the last. And notice, it wasn't what they read in the dirt that convicted their conscience. What convicted their conscience? What they heard Jesus say. You see, they wanted to trap Jesus so badly, they used this woman in a terrible way, The incontrovertible truth. They were all guilty in the setup. And as a result, if they had stoned her, her blood would have been on their hands. They knew their culpability. My guess is Jesus' approach was not what they had expected. Never in their wildest imaginations would they have believed Jesus would have told them to stone the woman. He called their bluff. And in doing so, revealed their own depravity. Once these accusers had departed, one by one, John tells us that Jesus and this woman, they share a private moment. Jesus gets up. There's the woman standing. And he asks her, he says, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? I, I imagine, again, not in the text, but that there was a, a, a bit of a smirk on Jesus' face. He knew these men. He knew them well. He says, has no one condemned you? And then she replies. She says, no one. And then she uses a very powerful word. She says, Lord. Now, not only are these the first three recorded words of this woman, but what she says is significant. Don't overlook it. In the Greek, this word Lord is kyrios. It's actually the word from which we get the word Christ. Additionally, though, from its construct, this woman was not just attributing to Jesus a title. She wasn't just saying, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. In the Greek, she's personalizing the title. It would be better translated as no one, my Lord, my Christ, my Savior. Though this had indeed been an, a painful experience, an embarrassing one, something fostered by her choices, her sins, the story ends with her encountering and accepting a Savior. In the end, she gives her life to Jesus Christ. You see, her life, she's affirming, it's no longer her own. You have saved me. You have purchased me. I'm yours. That's what she's saying. The, the word Kyrios, it means he to whom a person belongs. In response to Jesus' question, where are your accusers? She responds, there are none. Before then saying, I am yours. It's so beautiful. And while that's in and of itself, I think we can admit, pretty radical. In the answer, the woman is also though making an appeal. An interesting one. She's affirmed that her accusers are no longer there. She's identified Jesus as her Savior, as her, as her Christ, my Lord. No one's here. But in making this statement, while she acknowledges that the accusers are gone, there's no one remaining that can condemn her. She's acknowledging there was still one. She recognizes that of all of the accusers, Jesus was still there. Jesus could have accused her. In fact, you can make the argument that Jesus was the only sinless person there. He was without sin cast the first stone. Jesus could have righteously picked up a stone And executed her. He could have stoned her. The wages of sin is death. But it's for this reason that Jesus then says to her, right? Neither do I condemn you. I know I can. But I'm not going to. Go. And sin no more. And there's no question, the woman's sin had left her in a very tough spot. She was the woman caught in adultery. She stood there condemned, guilty, discharged, brought before Jesus. And yet, how incredible, inspiring, that in this woman's lowest point, when she was at her worst, most vulnerable, the moment this woman had been ripped off by the world and left naked by sin, filled with shame. When the religious people were ready to stone her, that Jesus stooped down to make eye contact and to meet her with love and grace. You know, though religion was all too willing to throw stones at the sinner, Jesus had a much better plan for the sinner. Instead of condemnation, Jesus' plan was salvation. In closing, (laughs) there are all kinds of practical applications that you could draw from this story. (laughs) Here's a few. Only those with a false sense of their own self-righteousness like exposing other people's sin. It's a heavy one. We could spend some time on that. Or or how about that the people who are most ready to throw stones at sinners are typically the least qualified to do so. That was a heavy one. Or or how about in contrast to religion that only condemns a person. That's all it can do. Jesus came to save. Or, Or how about Jesus... He might not be able to change our past. But he's more than willing to provide us with a new future. Go and sin no more. Or how about as a much larger illustration. Aren't we all the woman caught in adultery? Coming before Jesus at some point or another. Or, or how about the fact that the woman was only able to go and sin no more after she had heard Jesus utter the words, neither do I condemn you. You know, grace motivates us for all kinds of righteousness. And while all of those points, I think, could make for a great ending, I want to close by emphasizing the way in which this story challenges how we, as Christians, as a church, how we handle people caught in sin. And as I've already noted, while the religious leaders were focused on punishing the woman on account of her sin, she, her sin needs to be punished. Jesus was more interested in ministering to the sinner, to the woman caught. You know, keep in mind, <laughs> this woman didn't need what we often do. She didn't need anyone to tell her that what she had done was wrong. She didn't need a good sermon. Good finger lashing. She knew it. She would have been caught in her sin. She had committed adultery. Her secret life had been exposed. The woman had been laid bare. I can imagine, really truthfully, especially if you've ever been in a similar situation. I've never been, but maybe you. You know, as she stood there, before seeing Jesus, I can imagine that a swift stoning would have put her out of her misery. You know, sadly, religious people, they condemned her future because of her past. That's what religion does. And none of this were things that Jesus just dismissed out of hand. He didn't turn a blind eye to her sin. He didn't make up excuses for her. Jesus even affirmed that she was an adulterer. He acknowledged that she deserved to die. And yet the difference is that Jesus wanted to give her a fresh start in spite of her past mistakes. You see, the heart of Jesus towards this woman was salvation, not condemnation. Do you want to be Christ-like? This is Christ on display. You know, it's been rightly said. I don't know who said it. Some real smart, sage man like Joe Intrican or Larry Parkin probably. I don't know who said it but, it, but it's right. That the church is the only living organism that eats its wounded. I'll repeat that. The church is the only living organism that eats its wounded. It's a sad state. Christian. You know, instead of standing ready. To judge the sinner. By casting stones. We should all be more than willing. To stoop down. Make a connection with the sinner. With what Intention. Helping that broken, hurting person see Jesus. Because that's what they need. The profound truth illustrated by this story is that a man or a woman caught in their sin will never see the face of Jesus and the person throwing stones. So Father Lord, we just let that settle. in Jesus' name.